Good morning. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. We have just uh, finished up the study in 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to carry on with the next letter of Paul, uh, 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to just read five verses this morning. We were planning to do a whole chapter, and then I decided to do uh, one phrase instead. And so we're going to just look at one phrase this week, one phrase next week, Lord willing, and a phrase the following week, and hopefully by the rapture we'll be finished. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the Lord will come this week and we won't finish, right? <laughs> All right. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. If you remember our study in 1 Thessalonians, you will remember that the Thessalonian believers were idolaters, and they gave up idolatry, they forsook it, and they trusted in the living God. And uh, they endured a fair amount of persecution right out of the, the block there. As they trusted Jesus Christ, they immediately began to uh, endure persecution. And it caused Paul concern, and so he sent Timothy back to them to check on what was happening among these believers. And it was so encouraging to Paul to hear of their growth, of their um, movement forward, and so in the first letter of Thessalonians, he commends them for their faith, for their love, and for their hope. Uh, Timothy brings back a report to Paul, and uh, there were questions that they had that remained unanswered. And so Paul wrote another letter, Second Thessalonians, and the time frame between the two letters, probably weeks, maybe months, but probably not much more than that. But in that short period of time between the two letters, there, the growth rate of this group of believers was exponential. It was tremendous to see uh, their growth in that time frame. And he says here in 2 Thessalonians 1, Your faith grows exceedingly. Your love abounds toward each other. And then he also boasts of their patience in the midst and faith in all of their persecutions and their tribulations. It's an interesting thing to me, and I want you to think about this today as we go through this um, message, that very often God brings into our life, or allows maybe I should say, allows troubles and trials and difficulties and persecutions in the life of a Christian, and it really should be the catalyst for growth. It should be what spurs us on to trust God in greater ways than we have ever trusted him before. Very often when we have trials or difficulties or persecutions, we want to just give up. That's the natural tendency is to just 
run away from it, to hide, to go a different way. But for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, our, God, God's desire for us is to grow and keep on growing, to bear fruit and bear fruit abundantly. And that's what I want you to take away from this message this morning, is that that is God's intention for you as an individual believer. But it is also true um, of, of his intention for us as a local assembly. God wants us to grow. And so he encourages them. He's, he's thrilled with their growth here. And today I want to consider how we can grow. And we're just going to take the one phrase, which is found in verse 3, because your faith grows exceedingly. How can we grow in faith? Paul uses an interesting word here. It's actually, in Greek, you know that I'm not a Greek scholar, but the word hyper is in this word. The word is growth, but it's not just the normal word for growth. It's actually hypergrowth. Hypergrowth. It's not just that they're growing in faith, but they're growing exponentially in faith. The growth, their growth is off the chart. And so I want you to think about your faith. Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you growing? Are you growing in faith? It's a good question for me. It's a good question for you. It's a good question for us as a church. Are we growing in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And could, it, could we be experiencing, as the Thessalonians experienced, hyper-growth in faith? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about faith. It talks about those who have no faith, those who have little faith, those who have great faith, and those who are strong in faith. And if we could put a line chart, you know my famous line charts, right? And start at one end with no faith, and go to the other end and talk about great faith. Where would you be on that line today? Would you be one, no faith? You say, well, I'm a Christian, so I should have at least some faith, right? We hope so. Can we say we're at the hyper-faith level? Where are you on that chart today? Be honest with yourself. And ask yourself, Lord, where am I on this line of faith in my life? We know that the Lord wants us to express faith in him. Where am I on this chart, and where should I be? Faith obviously begins at salvation. The Bible says, for by grace you are saved through faith. So let's begin at the beginning. What is faith? Faith is what we do when we believe God. Faith is simply believing God. We believe who God is, and we believe what God says. And so how do we exercise faith? Well, God is very clear about what we must believe to be saved. First of all, you must believe that you're a sinner. If you've come to that point in your life where you say, you know what, God is right. I am a sinner. I have offended a holy God. That's actually faith. You're actually taking sides with God against yourself. And you're saying, I am a sinner. That's faith. When you say, when you believe that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, do you believe that you're a sinner? If you do, you have taken the first step of faith. You believe what God says. 
you also must believe that you deserve death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now, we don't see what happens to a person after they die, do we? We see a body that no longer has a spirit and a soul. And that body is normally put into the ground. But we don't see what happens to that person after they die. And there are a lot of theories about what happens after death. But they are based on ignorance. What only God knows and God has told us. He has revealed what happens in the scripture. And when we believe what he says, we believe that he says that the soul that sinneth shall die. And we know that it's talking about an eternal judgment. We believe God. That's faith. We are believing what God says. Third, we must believe that Jesus is God. Jesus said, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, referring to himself as God, you will die in your sins. It's a clear reference to his deity. Some years ago, we had a couple come over to our house. And as we talked, the woman said that she had come out of the Jehovah's Witness uh, or out of a Jehovah's Witness organization. And I asked her how she came to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is her story. She said, I was raised a Catholic. I went to church every Sunday. I went to Catholic school until I was 18 years old. And when I graduated, I chucked the whole thing and I became an agnostic. Someone who doesn't really know, isn't sure if God even exists. I got married. I had children. And at one point in my life, I became very sick. And I almost I should have died, she said. And I remember thinking, if God didn't want me when I was healthy, then I didn't want him um, now that I was sick. Just as I thought that thought, there was a ring at my front, you know, somebody rang the doorbell at my front door, and I came, and there were two people standing at the front door, two Jehovah's Witnesses. And I listened to them, and I began to study with them. And uh, she says, I became a Jehovah's Witness. And as they studied with me, they told me to read a small portion of Scripture. And so I would go, I would stay, you know, after the study, I would stay at home, and I would read chapters and chapters. And then the next week they would come and they'd say, just read this little bit. And I would read even more. And as I kept reading, I kept seeing that what we were studying and what I was seeing in the Scripture didn't add up. It didn't make sense. At Easter that year, we went to the national conference where thousands of Jehovah's Witnesses gather. And I was able to speak with one of the high church officials, she said. And I asked him, just who is Jesus Christ anyway? And he looked at me and he said, he's the son of God. She said, that's not a good enough answer. She said, who is he? And the man replied, he's a God. And she said, oh, so now we've got two gods? How can that be? Listen, he is either God or he's not. Which is it? And he said, oh, he's a God. And with that, she said, I left the Jehovah's Witnesses for good. And she realized that the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. They deny the deity of Christ. But after studying and reading the Scripture, uh, she did. And I was, that's really what I was waiting to hear as I listened to her testimony. Because I knew that's, that's the, the falling point, if you will, of those who are in uh, many of the cults. They deny the deity of Christ. But Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, Unless you recognize who Jesus is, you will die in your sins. And when we recognize that Jesus Christ is God, that's faith. 
That's faith. Next, you must believe that Jesus died on the cross as your substitute, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, and today he is alive. The Bible says that this is the gospel by which you are saved. And you say, that's it? I believe that gospel and I'm saved. That's it. That's faith. And we must believe the gospel. Jesus, or the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And again in Romans it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Listen, if you have come to that point in your life where you have bowed the knee and you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, that's faith. You have exercised faith in Him and He saves you. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. And so the beginning of our journey of faith starts at salvation. And you must place your faith in the only person who can save you, and his name is Jesus. Once you are saved, the Bible says in Habakkuk 2.4, the just, those who have been declared righteous by God, the just shall live by faith. And so it's not just that we have faith at a moment in time and have believed in Jesus Christ for our sa- as a Savior, but now we live by faith, the Scripture says. The just shall live by faith. God wants us to trust Him. And that's why there's so much emphasis in the Scripture on words like trust and faith and believe. We demonstrate faith by taking God at His word and saying, Lord, I see what You say. If I'm wrong in trusting you, I'm sunk. But I can't ever sink because you always tell the truth. Faith in the Lord. Lord, I trust you. So let's begin with those who have no faith. I'm going to turn to a passage in Mark chapter 4. And just one uh, verse here. On the same day, Mark 4.35, on the same day when evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said to them, the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Let us cross over to the other side. What was the Lord's will for the disciples? To get into the boat, cross over the lake to the other side. That was God's will, right? He says so right here. They took him at his word, they got in the boat, and they started sailing across to the other side. Now, I am told that the um, wind comes up very suddenly on the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know if you've ever been on a storm at sea, but it can be quite frightening. I think I've told you the story maybe several times of a time when I was about 8 or 10 years old, and I was on, the, on a ferry in the middle of the Georgia Strait off the coast of British Columbia, and the ferry travels from the Vancouver mainland to Vancouver Island. And in this particular night, it was a very stormy night, and the wind uh, was rocking the boat, and the waves were pummeling the boat, and I was walking inside, um, inside the boat, and I remember 
kind of stumbling along like this. And my mother said, that's exactly what it's like to be a drunk man. I'm not sure how she knew that. But she had seen them before. Next to the ferry was a yacht, a luxury yacht. And on board that yacht were three people. And the the winds and the waves were so fierce that that ship began to take on water and it began to sink. And as it began to sink in the Georgia Strait, the people on board the ferry went out to the outside deck of the ferry and began to shout to the people and say, Jump! Jump! The only way you can be saved is to jump. And the three people plunged themselves into the water, uh, very cold water that night. And I watched as the two men and the woman jumped into the See, and as their vessels slid underneath the waves, that night the two men perished at sea. They never found them. The woman, a passenger on board the ferry, actually jumped into the water from the deck and uh, put his arm around the woman and dragged her to the safety of the, um, of the, the ferry, and, and he was pulled back in. She did not survive either, ultimately. The disciples... In this particular passage in Mark 4, we're in a great storm. The wind was howling. The waves were pounding. The ship was filling with water. And, and these, uh, many of the disciples were rugged fishermen. They were used to the water. They were used to being in small vessels. They were used to the sea. But this night, they believed they were perishing. And they said that. They awoke the Lord Jesus in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, they said. And he rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was calm. And then he, re, then he turned and he rebuked them. And he said, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? No faith. And they were afraid. As I said at the beginning, there are circumstances that come into our lives that the Lord allows. These men we're in the very center of the will of God. We know that because they were doing exactly what Jesus said. They were going to the other side. They were in the center of God's will, and yet the Lord allowed a trial to come into their life, a testing to come into their life that was so severe that they thought they were going to perish at sea. The circumstances as I said, were supposed to be a catalyst for faith. They were to, they were, the circumstances were meant to drive them to trust Him. And instead, they became fearful. They were living by sight, not by faith. Now, faith does not ex- ignore real circumstances, but that, at that moment when they thought they were doomed, they should have believed or relied on the promise of God. If Jesus said, go to the other side... And he's here with us in the boat. We're going to make it to the other side. Now that's easy for me to say standing on dry land. But in the circumstances of your life, whatever the storm is that you're facing, if you are moving forward based on the word of God, you can trust him and he will see you through. The storms of life broadside us and knock the wind out of us sometimes. As long as you are in the center of God's will, as the disciples were, we can face the howling winds of a trial. There is no testing 
but such as is common to man. And with that temptation, He will deliver us. He will give us a way of escape, the Scripture says, that you may be able to endure it. Read the biographies of heroes of faith and note how many problems they face and how God delivers them out of them all. In his book, Made for Pleasure, Alistair Begg tells of the death of a family, family member, and he said, Nothing in my 20 years prepared me for that moment. The simultaneous sense of pain and fear and loss, anger, panic, and emptiness that engulfed me was indescribable. Without doubting God's love, I wondered at his purpose in allowing such sadness in our lives. And if I stop there in the, uh, in the book, it would be kind of a sad tale. But I listened to see if faith would break through, and it did. The truth is, he said, that more spiritual progress is made through failure and tears than success and laughter. If we are to be honest, we have all faced and continue to face events in our lives which we assume will mar us. And yet, in the providence of God, we discover them to be incidents that make us more sensitive or faithful or useful. If it is true of individuals, it is equally true of a church, of a church family. You know, the Bible really tells us that we need to expect that trials will come our way. And the trials are meant to test the genuineness of our faith, the Scripture says. And some of you have gone through and are going through severe trials. I know that. And the question has to be answered in every test, which is this. Will you trust God in the midst of the trial? Will you trust God to see you through to the other side? Do you believe in reality that all things work together for good to those who love him and those who are the called according to his purposes? It's not just a trite verse. It's the reality of what God has promised to us as believers. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are not sent to demonstrate that we have no faith, but to prove the genuineness of our faith. And when we trust God, we do something else. We bring praise and honor and glory to the Lord as we go through the trial, trusting Him. The disciples, they said, do you not care? Do you not care that we perish? Ask ask yourself, how do you respond in trials? Is that a question that you ask in your heart? You say, oh, I would never say that out loud. I know, we have outside voices and we have inside voices. And sometimes the inside voices do ask those questions. Lord, don't you care? Don't you see my circumstance? Don't you know what I need? Don't you know what I want? Don't you care? Well, I want to ask you, does the Lord care? Think about it. Think about his hands nailed to a cross. Think about his feet nailed to a cross. Think of his 
brow crowned with thorns. Think of his side pierced for you. There's no question of his care. No question. If he cared for you that much when you were his enemy, how much does he care for you now that you are his child? Does the Lord have power to deliver us from any circumstance? Yes. Or he may simply give us grace to endure the trial, as he did with uh, Paul. But where is our faith? And so as a Christian, let's just talk about it. As a Christian, are we growing? Am I growing in faith personally? Am I, am I really seeing these circumstances that come my way and saying, Lord, here is yet another opportunity for me to trust you. Here is yet another reason why I should trust you uh, through some hard trial. He really does care. <clears throat> the next group we read about in the Bible are those who have little faith. One of the greatest sermons ever preached is the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, nothing compares to it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? What's the problem here? The problem that Jesus is addressing is the worry that we allow to take over our lives, take over our thoughts, take over our thinking about simple matters that he will take care of, our day-to-day necessities. You say, well, I don't worry. I have a good job. I don't worry. And what if you got a layoff notice tomorrow? Would you worry then? Would that cripple your faith? The reason Jesus speaks so much about worry in this passage is because worry tends to be one of our best friends. And we rely on our friend worry in every circumstance of life. What do we worry about? Well, how are we going to make ends meet? How will we pay off the mortgage? Can we afford new shoes? Why doesn't money stretch the way it used to stretch? How am I going to pay for insurance for all of the unexpected things. It's not just that I have to pay for the unexpected things, but I have to pay for the insurance for the unexpected things, like medical emergencies or dental problems or floods or fires or earthquakes. How will I survive if my car breaks down again? Or the washing machine. How will we pay for tuition if you're in school? How can we afford to buy school textbooks? And then the credit card statement comes in. And you, and you look at it and you go, who put this on the credit card? And grocery costs continue to escalate in spite of Howard and Gary's best efforts to keep them in check, you know? And then there's worrying about marriage. Will I be married? Won't I be married? And if I do, where will I? You know, all these things we worry about, life issues. 
And then we worry, it's not enough to worry about today, we worry about tomorrow. And then we worry about the dim, indistinct future as well. I haven't invested in the stock market. I don't have a retirement plan. I have no gold, no bonds, no stocks, no options, no pension, no KIOs, no 401ks, no IRAs, no SEP IRAs. In fact, I don't even know what half of those things are. And I really don't care. I probably won't qualify for Social Security. And if I do, it'll probably run out of money by the time I reach that age. But I do qualify for taxes. And boy, do I have taxes. The Lord Jesus said, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Sometimes I act as if God doesn't know me and doesn't know my needs. But He does know. And I I like the way um, this has been taught in the past. And it's, it is interesting to think about the way the Lord tries to paint a picture for us here that is so absurd. He's saying you don't see birds gathering into barns, do you? And yet you see them well fed. Why? Because the Lord cares for his creatures. And if the Lord cares for a sparrow, the Lord cares for you. You don't see the flowers with singer sewing machines next to them. And yet, look at how beautiful they are. And yet, our clothes aren't sold at Costco, you know, $16 for two dozen, you know. Well, our clothes could be sold at Costco, but that's beside the point. And, you know, I think about faith, and I think when we came to know the Lord back here, wherever it was on that timeline, some of, it, some of you, it's a long way back. But you know what we were saying when we, when we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior? We were saying, Lord, here I am. I trust you with my soul for all eternity. I commit it to your hands. I commit my life, my soul, my being, everything to you. I am trusting you with the eternal salvation of my soul. But no, I can't trust you for tomorrow's bread and butter. Doesn't make sense, does it? Are we growing in faith? Are we growing in faith? It's possible to begin well and make great strides of faith, as the disciples did. They were like us. But it's also possible for us, even in the midst of faith, to take our eyes off of Jesus and to sink like Peter did. The disciples were out in a boat another time. Again, another storm. And the Lord came walking on water. And he said to Peter, come out of the boat, step on the water. He had the will, that was the will of God. He knew what the will of God was. He had just been told. And he believed the Lord. And he stepped out and he put his foot on top of the water and began to walk. I wish the story ended there. But then he looked at the circumstances. This can't be happening. And he began to sink. 
And the Lord immediately stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I'm telling you, if I saw somebody walk on water, I would have thought of him as being great in faith. But just a few steps, and he sank. And the Lord says, Oh, you of little faith. The disciples saw the Lord take five loaves of bread and feed 5,000 men plus women and children. And then at another time, oh, and they had 12 baskets left over after that time. And then another time, the Lord took seven loaves and fed 4,000 men plus women and children. And they had seven large baskets of leftovers. And then shortly after that, they began to worry about bread again, food. And listen, if the Lord can feed 5,000 plus or 4,000 plus, that's nothing compared to the fact that God fed probably 2 million Jews on a daily basis in a desert with manna from heaven. It's not a problem with God. It's not a problem with Him to take care of our current necessities. It's not a problem. Do you have faith to believe? Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? There were those who had great faith. In fact, really there are two interesting stories in the Scripture. The Lord, it's so rare that he, he actually points it out. And he talks about two people who had great faith in Scripture. And in uh, Matthew 8, 5, it says this, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Then the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Then when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And he said to the man, ultimately, go your way. As you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very hour. Wow, what a story. What faith. The man was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. What right did he have to think that the Lord would heal, do anything for him? But he came pleading on behalf of his servant. And he was so strong in faith that he believed the Lord just simply had to utter the words. And that at a distance... His servant would be healed. I'm telling you, this is one of the greatest passages of encouragement to me when it comes to trusting God. Jesus is not here on earth physically anymore. He doesn't have to be to hear us and to answer our prayer. And he can speak the word from heaven. And his word can heal and restore and raise up this servant. Just It was at a distance. It doesn't matter the distance, does it? He is able. Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, Jesus said, not even in Israel. Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, and he did not find great faith among them. Instead, he has found a Gentile man of great faith, and he marveled. 
that Gentile man recognized who Jesus is, that he is God, because only God could speak the word and, and raise up a servant who was tormented and dreadfully uh, and paralyzed. He believed in the character of God, that he was compassionate and merciful, and he pled on that basis. And he, he uh, believed the ability of God to raise him up from his sickbed. And he was rewarded with an answer to his faith. The next person I think of is a Gentile woman, Matthew 15. You remember the story of this woman who had a daughter who was demon-possessed. She had one simple cry. And you can just see her heart yearning for the Lord to hear an answer. And she says, this is it. Lord, help me. That was it. What a simple prayer. What a simple prayer. I don't know what circumstances you're facing right now in your life. (laughs) You know, I hear the prayers being offered. I hear requests being made. And I, I hear... Beyond the words that are said, the heartfelt cry of your heart about things that are going on in your life or the life of your friends or your family or people you know. Lord, help me. And Lord hears and answers her prayer. But it's interesting, in the midst of this trial, just like we've said earlier today, The Lord allows circumstances, difficult circumstances, trials, difficulties in our lives that are supposed to be the catalyst for us to trust in him even more. And here this woman has a daughter who is demon-possessed, and she comes and she pleads with the Lord, Lord, help me! Can you hear her cry? And the Lord says, oh, okay. No, he doesn't. He pushes back. He pushes her back. Not physically. But in his words, he says, I didn't come here for the Gentiles. I came here for the children. Is it right for me to take the children's food and give them to the dogs? And faith, true faith, great faith, pushes right back. And she says, Lord, even the crumbs that fall from the table, are enough to heal my daughter. Wow, what great faith. What faith. And so the Lord said, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. Both of these people showed great faith by asking the Lord to help others. And if you want to be challenged in your faith, don't just ask about your own needs. Certainly do that. But ask the Lord to intervene on behalf of others, and he will. Take it the next step. Believe him to work in the lives of others. And this is my challenge to us as a church this morning, that we as a church need to grow in faith. We need faith like the Thessalonian believers. We need this hyper-faith, this faith that just breaks through every barrier. Can we believe God to do the impossible? Can we say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, 
Do we have faith in God? That's the question. In his book, Fresh Faith, Jim Cimbala uh, tells the true account of a man named Calvin Hunt. I want to read it to you. This is actually condensed quite a bit, but I want to read it to you. Calvin Hunt was just 20 years old when he met Miriam and her two preschool kids. Calvin loved the kids, and they loved him. Calvin worked in road construction, and on the weekends, he was a weekend musician. Miriam, at the time, was going through a divorce from an abusive husband who sometimes beat her to unconsciousness. After a year in the Army, Calvin returned to New York City, and Miriam's divorce was final, so he just moved in with her. He worked hard all week, and then they partied all weekend long. They drank, they did drugs, they sought thrills and worldly pleasures. And after five years of living like this, Miriam finally said to him, Look, Calvin, why don't we just get married? And so they did in 1984. One weekend they went to a party, and for the first time they tried freebasing cocaine. They didn't realize it, but that moment they were hooked. And in one night, he blew his entire week's salary. They had joined the world of crack cocaine. And he, during the week, he chastised himself for being so irresponsible. But by the next Friday, he told Miriam, listen, get the kids to bed early. I've got the stuff. And by Saturday morning, he had just wasted another week's paycheck. And this pattern continued every weekend over and over again for eight months. Bills were not being paid. Rent fell behind. Every dollar he earned was going into crack cocaine. And it wasn't enough. His, his income was not enough. And so he began to steal to get more during the week. And he was now gone from home two nights, three nights, four nights, five nights a week. Miriam woke up one day and she said to herself, I've had enough of this chaos. And she went into the kitchen that night, later that night, where her husband and his friends were freebasing cocaine. And she threw them all out on the street, including Calvin. She pleaded with him to stop. She felt betrayed by this man who had saved her from an abusive husband, only to become one himself. And in the depths of despair, she began going to church. And there at church, she heard for the first time the gospel message. And she put her faith in Jesus Christ as her Savior and Lord. And her life, whew, it really turned around. And Calvin did not know what got into her, but he didn't like it one bit. But Miriam had faith in God. She believed God. And she believed God would save her husband too. And she began to tell Calvin... Calvin, God is going to set you free. I know He is. I know He's going to set you free. And He did everything He could to discourage her, but it only made her stronger in her faith in God. That's what I said. Every time there's a trial, every time there's a difficulty, that is supposed to be, in the Christian life, the catalyst to cause us to trust God more. And she did. She grew stronger in her faith. 
She brought up his name at church. And she said, pray for my husband, Calvin. He seemed to be an absolutely hopeless case. But they prayed on. Calvin would only come home now, rare occasions, just to pick up clean clothes and then leave. And he would always time his visits when he knew that Miriam and the children were at church, whether that was on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night in their prayer meeting. And he would always time it so that there was nobody home because he didn't want to deal with them. He just wanted to pick up his clothes and go back out and live his life. Miriam cried out to the Lord to set him free, and she got all all of her friends together to pray with her. At every meal, she would pray with her children for 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 their father. Every bedtime prayer included, Oh God, please set Daddy free. Three more years of this. Three more years. And Calvin got worse, not better. His body was like that of a walking corpse, wasted and broken. Turned out Calvin came home one night. Again, he timed it so that they would be at the prayer meeting and there'd be nobody there. And as he entered into the house... He found some food in the fridge. He took a shower and put on clean clothes. He knew he had a little time, and so he thought, I'll just lie down on, bed, on the bed and take a, a nap. For he had been sleeping in a friend's house, actually in the dog house, at a friend's house in the backyard. And he couldn't sleep. And there in bed, he, he heard somebody weeping. And it startled him. Well, maybe the kids were home. And so he got up and he looked into every room and every closet and under every bed. No one was there. He went back to the room to lie down. Now there was sobbing. He shouted, I know you guys are here. Come out. I know you're here. Come out. And nobody appeared. He was spooked. And the crying continued and he panicked. And he ran out the door and he ran three blocks to the uh, transit train And he thought, I know, I'm going to go to the church where Miriam is, see what's going on. And he burst into the building and he stood at the back in the center aisle of the church. And he heard the same sounds. The sounds of that crying that he had heard when he was at home, but now it was louder. And it was coming from the pews, from the seats in the church. The people all over the congregation crying. Much louder cries than at the apartment. And the whole congregation was crying and praying and calling out his name before the Lord. And he looked and he saw tears running down the faces of people throughout the congregation as they prayed for him. They didn't even know him. The whole congregation was crying and praying and calling out his name to the Lord, sobbing to the Lord. And he was thunderstruck. He heard one person cry out, Oh God, wherever Calvin Hunt is, bring him to this building. Don't let his family go through this horror one more day. Lord, you are able. Set him free from this bondage once and for all. The man in charge of the meeting opened his eyes for a minute and he saw Calvin Hunt standing at the back of the church building. And he said, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. He is here. 
And there in that prayer meeting in the summer of 1988, Calvin Hobbes Hunt was gloriously saved. And that night, he gave up his cocaine habit, cold turkey. It was over. It was done. And Jesus Christ set him free. Kelvin Hunt started on his line of faith, right where you start your line of faith as well. And he trusted in Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior. He placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus set him free, completely free. As I mentioned, Calvin was a singer. The Lord not only forgave his sins, not only set him free, the Lord restored his wife to him, his family to him, gave him jobs, and then Calvin began to sing for the Lord. One song that he sang was, I'm clean. I'm clean. It became his testimony of what the Lord did, and Calvin is a trophy of God's grace. In that recording, Calvin says, I thank God for what he's done. He has set me free from that. I don't have to do drugs anymore. He said, I slept in abandoned buildings. I smoked crack in backyards and on rooftops and train stations. Wherever I could smoke it, I smoked it. Having a family, leaving my family, I abandoned my family, and I was doing what was pleasing me. But I was being blind by the crack, and crack was my God, and I served it well. But today I can tell you, I am serving Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus Christ is able to set you free, no matter what your sin, no matter what you've been involved in. He cleansed me, Calvin said. He has set me free. But for our purposes of faith this morning, I want to focus not on Calvin, but I want to focus on Miriam. Just like the centurion, just like the woman who had a demon-possessed daughter, we can say of Miriam, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you desire. And this is the challenge to us at Calvary Bible Chapel. Let the Lord say of this church, My bride, great is your faith. I have seen the young people grow in their faith. I have seen them challenged to take the name of one person and pray for that person specifically. And there have been times when barely have they said amen. (laughs) And God has already answered their prayer. And I want to encourage you young people for what you're doing. And I want to encourage you to grow in faith. But I want to encourage you old people, myself included, us gray hairs, and some of you don't have gray hairs yet. Grow in your faith. Grow in your faith. Let it be said of you, great is your faith. And I want to encourage you. I want, to, I want you to think about something here. Those of you who have the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, I want to challenge you to Do things a little differently. It doesn't have to be every week. But I want to encourage you to be like this church that we read about and take the name of one person, just one, 
And you pray, and let us pray, the entire prayer meeting with this kind of faith and see God at work, changing that one person, saving that one person, delivering that one person from their sins. Have faith in God, and let it be said that you have great faith. Finally, there are those who are strong in faith, and I don't have time to read and tell you about them all, but I will say this. You can go home and you can read about them. It's in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 40. By faith, Abraham. By faith, the elders. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Abraham again. And Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. All of these people, the Lord is pointing out and saying, they did great things. And when you look at the circumstances, again, they used the uh, trials, the difficulties, the, the uh, trouble in their life as that catalyst to trust God, to see them through. By faith. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. This is an unfinished chapter in the Bible. And we are writing the final chapters of this chapter 11 as we exercise faith. I want to be able to stand before the Lord one day and give an account of this assembly. And I want to do it with joy. And I want to be able to say, like Paul said of the Thessalonian believers, it is fitting that I give thanks for you, brethren, because your faith grows exceedingly. That assembly in Fremont, California, Lord, they had hyper faith. Let us pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we want to recognize that you desire in us trust, faith, reliance on you. Lord, you are the only one who is worthy to be trusted. And Lord, we just cry out to you to forgive us, Lord, for our lack of faith, for having no faith or or little faith. Lord, let it be said of us that we are a church and individuals in this church of great faith. Lord, as you put or allow circumstances into our life, 
that will challenge us to the core. I pray, Lord, that we would not run, we would not worry, we would not turn, but rather, Lord, we would look at these things, these trials, these difficulties as an opportunity to trust you more. Help us, Lord, we pray, to be men, great men of, and women of faith, we pray. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.